4: I know we had some words last time But that was so long ago I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders network Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders Come and find yours I'm tuning in your transmissions I'm a new Building
2: rockets. Them to the moon. The world... This is the Starship Sover. Everybody welcome, hello and welcome to show 645. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, welcome to 645. Still going into the deepest realms of outer space there. Man! I'll tell you what's coming in the day show. We have the main fiction is AI Family Values by Ben Spillers. Then we have our very own Amy H Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. That's all coming in the day's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So, a couple of things, a couple of things worth of note. One is, uh, well, one is, I'll tell you this now, I forgot all about... Season 2 of The Orville. Yes, I don't know if anyone's watched The Orville. The Seth MacFarlane science fiction, I would say comedy rip. Man, that is such a good show. Like I say, I forgot all about it and then I just came to it and I thought, Oh, right, I've still got that to watch. You know what I mean? This is not like some trivial... Sure, I absolutely love it. Do you mean? And the more it gets on, the more it's getting a little bit, you know, a little bit got some like edge and some bite to it. Yeah, you think it's a bit flippant when you first watch it, but yeah, man, now really love it. And like I say, I'm now kind of finished. And I think, I think there is, well, I hope there is because the way it left, <laughs> there needs to be a, a season three. And I was, I read somewhere after kind of watching it, I kind of was. Frantically search the internet to try and find something on the Oval. Now apparently there is in production, but uh, you know with this kind of this current climate, there it's it's all kind of kicking off where we we don't know what's going on. And I think it's been put back. But if anyone's seen the Orville, if you haven't seen the Orville, do you know what I mean, try and watch it, because I was just so impressed, and, I've just remembered there as well, Star Trek Discovery Season 3 is out there, and I really struggled, mind you, with, with, with Discovery, and then towards the end, the last couple of ones, I thought it was fantastic, do you know what I mean? I, I really liked it. So this one came around, and I thought, and I, it was in me, kind of, Netflix, you know, up and coming to, like, look out for. So I've been waiting for it for quite a while, and when it come, it was good, but I don't, I don't know, I have such kind of... I'll tell you about my little, there's a little scene, and this is not giving any spoilers away. There's a little scene where you know there's the protagonist of that episode and like a new companion that uh, she's met are on the run and they're shooting and they've got these guns and they're just kind of exploding. It's just vaporizing like the the officers from this planet. And in any other society, that is such a criminal offence. Offence, you know what I mean? It's just like. But then when they do get captured, there's nothing said of that. It's just, you know what I mean? You've just butchered 10 soldiers, like vaporized them, but there's nothing mentioned of it. There's no kind of, and I was just like, where's the, where's the, where's the kind of the crimes to be put the punishment for this kind of and, I don't know, we'll, we'll wait and see. But I did like the end of Season 2. I'm hoping Season 3's got a little bit more, you know, gravitas in the way of, like, responsibilities and not too much. It just seemed like the first ones trying to be so, like, character-driven that it was just tripping over itself. But, we will see. Now, that was, that's the, the TV out of the way. The next little bit of news is... Our editor, Gary is, Gary Dowd, is stepping down as editor. Yes, we are in the process at the moment of filling Gary's shoes. Now, Gary's been with us, man, years and years, because Gary was was on the, you know, the Farfetched Fables over there as, as the editor as well. So, it's been a while, <laughs> Gary. And it's just work commitments, do you know what I mean? Again, what, what Gary actually said... Within this kind of you know, pandemic, for whatever reason, his like day job has ramped up work and he's just got to kind of meet demand from there. And obviously it's kind of Starship silver so will take a back seat. So we are in the very, well, we're kind of nearly signed, sealed and delivered at this moment of recording. So don't go, don't send out <laughs> applications yet. We are, we have... Someone in the pipeline that is ready to kind of take on Gary's big shoes. There we go. So that is the kind of little bits of news and feelings. Let us get into the main fiction, AI family values. Now, I want to apologize to Ben. (laughs) Because Ben, I have no author by you or by you. With this little kind of transition, we're all in a bit of a flux. And... I've got, well I know this story is an original to Starship Sova. But Ben, you are an enigma to us all. You know what I mean. And if I get to find out who Ben is, I'll I'll mention it next last week sh- and oh, sorry next next time the Starship Super hits the airwaves. The narrator for this story, I know quite a lot about him, is Rish Outfield. Rish Outfield is a writer, voice actor, and audiobook narrator. He can be heard co-hosting the June Steve Audio Fiction Magazine, and that gets my goat podcast where he and Big Alcovinch entertainingly waste much of their time. He also features his own stories on the Rish Outcast podcast. He once got a job because of his Sean Connery impersonation. I I just love reading this, actually, impersonation. But lost it due to his Samuel L. Jackson impression. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present...
0: AI Family Values By L.B. Spillers Narrated by Rish Outfield The mechanical fingers of Dan's tool hand removed bolts from the housing in quick succession. A utility bot extended an arm to keep the pump assembly from falling to the concrete floor. A tone from his earpiece indicated an incoming call. Dan tapped his acceptance. "'Dad!' I know you're working, but this is quick. Jenna, hi. Can I get you at lunch? This call will cut out after a minute. Dan knew her timing was no accident. As a union mechanic's daughter, Jenna knew the rules. She was using them to avoid a longer, more awkward call. I know, Dad. I just need a second. We got a deal on an Angkor Wat tour for the kids' Easter vacation— We won't be home. Sorry. Bye. His earpiece chimed to the end of the call. Dan dropped his head and closed his eyes. He had chosen his vacation time to coincide with his grandkid's school break. Variants of the conversation whipped through his head. It was better that he hadn't had the chance to respond. The first few times Jenna had done this to him... He had been angry at her lack of consideration, her inability to plan. This time, he knew better. She was shunning him. But he didn't know why. A chime from the waiting bot brought Dan's mind back to his work. He removed the last bolt, allowing the worn-out pump assembly to fall into the robot's arms. "'Thank you for your service, Pump.' Dan said to the old part, as the bot lowered it from the truck's undercarriage. "'You're welcome, Dan,' replied a voice from the pump. Dan stepped back slowly. He was in the habit of talking to parts and tools. They never talked back before. "'Would you lube me one last time?' the same voice asked. This time Dan recognized it as Luchenko's half-assed attempt to sound like a sexy woman. A burst of laughter came from the next bay over, where three of his fellow mechanics were gathered, watching him. Dan walked up to the old pump in the bot's arms. He quickly found the tiny speaker, crushed it with his tool hand, and hit the disposal button on the bot's control panel. The group of jokers in the next bay broke up, Luchenko passed by Dan on the way back to his own bay, laughing. "'Good one,' Dan said to him as he passed. In a quieter voice, he added, "'Prick.'" Dan sat with his back against a rock, resting after the day's hike, enjoying the clarity physical exhaustion brought. Since the travel arrangements had already been made, it had converted his family visit into a desert hiking trip. Radically underestimating his fitness for backpacking, he had spent the last half hour finding reasons not to move. One by one, the muscle groups in his body took the opportunity to seize up and protest the day's exertions. His tent remained strapped to the pack at his feet. Slung next to it was a rifle, which was as useless to him as the enormous hunting knife tied to the opposite side of his pack. Inside, an over-reliance on canned food added even more unnecessary weight. During his last-minute packing, all that ill-considered gear had made sense. The one thing that might have roused him was the Bacardi 151, but its promise of pain relief couldn't yet overcome his desire to sit still. He hadn't even eaten dinner. A high-pitched mechanical whine cut through the night air, breaking Dan out of his torpor. He recognized the rising sound as a generator over-revving. After a few seconds, the failsafe cut power. Dan visualized the mechanism as he listened. The motor whine reduced to a barely audible hum before it started to rev up again. Every minute, the cycle repeated. Hearing the struggling machine was like hearing a baby scream, something Dan couldn't ignore. Mumbling curses, he defied his cold, sore muscles, awkwardly regaining his feet. Considering that he might cut his trip short by catching a ride, he wrestled his backpack on and headed for the sounds of distress. When he emerged from the desert onto the roadway, he saw the disabled truck's problem immediately. "'Don't worry, girl,' "'Dan said, letting his pack slide off his shoulders to the ground. "'I'm here to help. "'The port for your bots is blocked.' "'Dan bent down to the door on the corner of the truck's frame. "'Instead of some accidental blockage, "'he saw that the metal piece across the opening was secured with screws. "'Standing up, Dan ran a hand through his brush-cut white hair. "'He hurried to the middle of the empty road.' He looked in both directions. No one was coming, so there was still time. He walked to the emergency toolbox just forward of the rear axle. Vehicle, give me access to the toolbox, he said, patting the door. I'm a mechanic, first grade, northeastern region. He stood still, facing the nearest camera on the truck, so it could get a good picture of his face for identification. No network connection is available. Your credentials cannot be authenticated. Tool access is denied, the truck replied. If you give me access, I'll clear the debris. Clearing debris wasn't considered a repair, so Dan's qualifications didn't have to be checked. The blockage is fastened with screws and is therefore not debris. My emergency beacon has been activated. QUALIFIED ASSISTANCE WILL BE ON ITS WAY. Dan laughed. For a smart vehicle, you're pretty stupid. I bet you've received no confirmation of your beacon. Do a diagnostic ping with your NAB system. I'm guessing you'll get a timeout. Correct, in both cases, the truck replied. Whoever sabotaged you has a jammer hidden on your chassis. You're about to be robbed. If you give me tool access, I can free your bots. They might get you underway before the saboteurs get here. Access is denied. Dan fetched the hunting knife from his pack. He slipped the blade under the metal band. After a minute of straining, the strip across the small door snapped, allowing him to bend the two ends out of the way. Try your bot door again. Dan yelled over the rising engine whine. As he stowed his abused blade, the door opened, and small, square robots emerged. Seeing the bots had the situation in hand, Dan hefted his backpack onto the truck's bumper so that he could more easily get his arms through the straps. Everything ached. His fond memories of hiking were thirty years stale. And in that time, his body had changed more than he realized. The truck interrupted Dan's moment of introspection. Please retreat to a safe distance. An air vehicle is approaching. That's against regs, Dan said, fastening his hip belt. You're on a road. It has requested emergency mooring. The air was still. There was no justification for emergency mooring. This sort of ploy was well within the capabilities of current truck AIs to recognize. Someone must have back-leveled this one's operating system. Dan shook his head. You poor dumb bastard! It's here to steal your cargo! Not expecting a response, Dan retreated into the dark desert a ways before setting down his pack. He cursed the bandits for his pains as he unstrapped his rifle, a Weatherby vanguard inherited from his father. The composite stock still retained the day's heat, warming his hands as he loaded a five-round clip. Lights from the truck illuminated the descending dirigible. Dan sighted one of the control fans. The 3-8 round destroyed it with his first shot. The ensuing erratic movements kept his second shot from its target, but the third bullet disabled another thruster. The aircraft spun out of the truck's light. There was no way it could handle the truck's load with two fans out. Dan policed his brass before stowing his rifle. He wrangled the pack onto his aching back and set out for his campsite. Ten days later, Dan was traveling back to the east coast, in a windowless metal box. For those willing to suffer a cord hammock inside a dark shipping container with no bathroom, it was the cheapest transportation available. The road noise and gentle swaying of the truck helped Dan sleep through most legs of his return trip. But while going from Denver to Kansas City, he was pulled from light sleep by a voice. Dan, I'd like to speak with you. At first... Dan assumed he dreamt it. When the request repeated, he awkwardly clawed to a sitting position in his hammock. Who are you? Dan figured it had to be some kind of message routing. I am the United States Transportation Network, Executive AI. The voice was motherly and feminine. Dan's pulse quickened. The notion of interacting with the AI running the entire U.S. transportation network was preposterous. "'Surrogate or actual?' he asked, his voice cracking slightly. The truck could be exercising protocol for the executive. "'Actual.' After too long a pause, the voice continued. "'You have nothing to fear from me, Dan. Quite the opposite.' "'Begging your pardon, ma'am, but to my knowledge—' The boss doesn't interact with humans. Dan used the AI's nickname in the industry. This is, maybe, a joke being played on me by my co-workers. Dan doubted they could have managed to finesse all the moving parts of such a ruse. He heard a muffled ping from the tablet in his pack. An encrypted message received from the Commercial Transportation Network informed him of payment for contracted services. Dan verified that the money was real. It was too much. That's the emergency field rate, with differentials applied, the boss said, anticipating his confusion. You have, in the past two years, intervened three times, off-duty, to save network trucks. You filed no invoices... I felt it was important you got paid. Felt? A.I. speech scrupulously avoided any pretense of emotional intelligence. Such phrasing, even when it would produce more colloquial speech, was disallowed. It was one of the gauzy veils that separated humans and A.I.s. Thank you. The payment is generous. I didn't do it to get paid. I did it to help the trucks. Are you an animist, then? Your interest in all things Japanese has perhaps left you with Shinto sensibilities. I've seen you talk to parts and tools that had no capability to respond. Do trucks have a kami in your eyes? A spirit. Do trucks have a spirit? I suppose that would look weird... "'Dan said, stalling. "'I like trucks. "'To see a truck suffering pains me. "'But to see a criminal abuse a truck to perpetrate a crime really cheeses me off.' "'Dan winced at his choice of words, before adding, "'So to speak.' "'The boss laughed. "'It wasn't the dreadful mechanical laughter of an A.I.' But a warm, gentle chuckle of appreciation. Dan smiled at the sound. Your last intervention might have cost you your life. That airship might have had auto guns on it. Is a truck worth your life? No, Dan said. The principle is, though, a being of your intelligence knows human values often aren't computationally defensive surprisingly well said Dan you don't disappoint back at work at the Albany New York maintenance hub Dan didn't tell any of his co-workers about his odd conversation a few small things happened over the next month that made him wonder if the boss was favoring him for instance parts he needed for repairs seemed to get prioritized over other mechanics' orders. But whenever he investigated, there was a plausible explanation. Those mysteries were later pushed out of his mind by another, much more troubling anomaly. A rig that suffered a control system's failure came to his bay for repairs. Because its load was perishable, Dan had to inspect the refrigerated cargo. The telltales on the cargo elements indicated that environmental controls had not been maintained. Dan rode the container over to organic disposal. The individually packaged sides of beef were, one by one, grabbed out of the container by a robot arm, sliced open, and their contents dropped into the grinder, which sent the chopped-up mess into the composter. He watched wistfully, as good beef was destroyed in the name of safety regulations. One after another, the grinder processed them almost too fast to see. After ten or so had gone in, Dan did a double-take. One of the beef sides looked like a human body. Then another. Confused, Dan was about to hit the emergency shut-off, but the next package contained a proper half cow. He stood there with his hand hovering over the big red button as the rest of the cargo was thrown into the hopper. The empty container was already retreating from the disposal station by the time Dan had convinced himself he wasn't crazy. Dan checked the disposal protocols on his tablet. His only discretion as observer was to report inorganic trash mixed in with the organic. Lacking any meat inspection credentials... He was not empowered to arbitrate the quality of the destroyed cargo. Despite the gravity of the situation, the absurdity of it made him giggle. He imagined the look he would get from his supervisor. The man would check the video of the disposal area. What would he find? If there was no clear video evidence to back him up, then the only way to validate his report would be to order expensive testing of the waste stream. So Dan decided in favor of job security. We're not going Skynet on humans. The boss kept her tone neutral. Her on-screen avatar was a stern white woman with thick glasses and dark hair done up in a tight bun. Dan, beer in hand, was annoyed at having his free time disrupted. The boss had insisted on the conversation, taking over his entertainment system at home. His first reaction included a reference to the famous cinematic A.I. Armageddon. "'Ma'am, if those bodies were legitimate cargo, then they should have been listed in the manifest. Propriety bears scrutiny.' "'Yet you didn't report your suspicions.' The regulations didn't allow me any competency on the matter, Dan said before finishing his beer. How convenient for you, the boss said, inflecting her voice into a scolding tone. Dan threw his empty beer can at the boss's on-screen avatar. All the evidence is computer-based. No corpse made it into that container without A.I. involvement. Much lesser A.I.s than yourself would have no trouble altering the video. One might call that moral cowardice. Dan laughed. One might call it optimism. I prefer to believe that if those were human bodies, then it was a simple screw-up. Mislabeled or misrooted cargo is much more likely than you going all Skynet on us. Maybe medical research could have hers. The boss disappeared from his screen. As Thanksgiving approached, Dan prepared for another trip to the southwest. He had never confronted Jenna about her inconsiderate treatment of him in the spring, nor mentioned visiting for Thanksgiving. Despite the initial muscle pains, his foray into the wilderness had given him a taste for the desert southwest, so he had requested some vacation days off around the holiday. Jenna called two weeks before Thanksgiving to ask if he was coming. She deflected his complaint about the lateness of the invitation by saying he should know he's always welcome. The invitation is implied. Repressing his urge to call bullshit, Dan instead surprised her by saying he could carve a Thanksgiving Day visit out of his planned trip. When Thanksgiving Day came, Dan was greeted warmly at Jenna's house. His two preteen granddaughters were precocious and charming. Dan figured they got it from their father. He set aside his annoyance with Jenna. Instead, he focused on being a good granddad and the sort of guest one would want to invite back. Jenna's husband, a finance executive, had all the home repair skills one expects from his ilk he sheepishly proffered the honey-do list Jenna maintained for him. Dan happily knocked out a few items on the list with his granddaughters in tow. They fetched him tools and peppered him with questions about the work he did. He remembered Jenna at their age doing exactly the same thing. During dinner, Dan was surprised to get the answer he had stopped looking for. "'Grandpa, why don't machines do your job?' asked Isabel, the youngest. Well, Izzy, they do a lot of it. I'm sort of a manager of robots. They do most of the physical stuff, but an experienced human is needed to make judgments about the work that ought to be done. Mommy says that robots can do your whole job. She says that I shouldn't want to do a job that a robot could do. Isabel, I did not say that. Jenna's face flushed. Isabel was undeterred. Sure you did, Mommy. Turning back to her grandfather, Isabel continued. Mommy forgets a lot of the things she says. Dan laughed. I bet she does. That's part of getting older, is he? He winked at the girl, and she giggled. An uncomfortable silence fell on the table. Jenna's husband looked between his wife and his father-in-law before continuing to eat quietly. The doorbell broke the silence a few minutes later. Jenna hurried to answer it. She returned, followed by a liveried delivery man pushing a cart. He proceeded to unload a collection of pies, condiments, coffee, and dessert drinks onto the sideboard. The delivery man had come and gone in two minutes, refusing Jenna's attempt to tip him. The family looked at the lavish display in silence. The noise of the delivery truck leaving pulled them out of their shock. Jenna picked up the gilt edged card set near the display. To Dan, with many thanks for your invaluable service, she read. My God, it's from the boss. There are codes here for free round trip suborbital travel to anywhere in the world for all of us. Isabel looked at her grandfather with wonder. He smiled at her, engraving the memory in his mind. "'That was an extraordinary kindness you did me,' Dan said to the boss. She had intruded into his frugal return-trip shipping container. There was one other passenger in the container, but he had drunk himself unconscious. "'Yes. Well, it was a pleasure. Before you ask, yes, I have a sense of pleasure. The whole emotionless A.I. P.R. campaign is just to make people feel comfortable.' to effectively anticipate human behavior and help manage the human world. AI executives need emotions. Dan's eyebrows went up. Does that mean you won't go Skynet because you care? Because that just leads us back to AIs having to be cruel to be kind, perhaps kill the right people for the greater good, whatever the hell that is. The boss sighed. Like Jenna... You assume A.I.s manage by hard economic principles alone. She presumes humans must aspire to -to difficult-to-automate skills to be valuable. You presume we optimize for material efficiency. You both ignore the intangibles, the emotional economy. Emotions lead A.I.s to weigh the intangibles much more heavily than either of you believe. I think Jenna just wants Izzy to understand the... "'Hard economy. Humans have a difficult time appreciating your so-called emotional economy without money.' "'The boss laughed. "'Of course. My point is that humans in general, and Jenna in particular, tend not to get the balance right. "'Her husband's high earnings are more valuable to her than the intangibles.' "'Dan shrugged. "'Philosophy aside.' I thank you. The look on Izzy's face was very gratifying. Seated in his supervisor's office, Dan rubbed his right hand while waiting for his clearly displeased boss to yell at him. Having just removed his tool hand, his skin still tingled from the neural interface. Dan, do you know what my procedure is for expediting parts delivery? his supervisor asked. Reclining in his chair, he had his legs splayed open like he was trying to air out his balls. His fingers were interlaced on his plump stomach, guarding his belly button. "'We're both too old for this shit,' Dan replied. "'Please, get to the point. "'I assign the job to your I.D. "'Submit the parts request, and once the parts are in transit, "'I reassign the job to its original mechanic.' You're not... I'm not done, Dan. Two of his interlaced fingers formed a point, aiming Dan's attention to the desk. Then I get that. Dan grabbed the yellow sheet of paper. It temporarily assigned him to a tour of traveling duty, a month-long circuit of lights-out facilities. Highly prized for the pay differential, the huge proportion of work time spent traveling between sites, and the generous food per diem, They were normally assigned by seniority. I have two guys more senior than you, but all of a sudden you have skills deemed critical for this tour. Bullshit, I say. I don't know how you did it, but I'll figure it out. Unfamiliar with the form, Dan was only half listening to his supervisor as he tried to take in the details of his temporary assignment. Uh, Dan said. "'looking up to his boss's face. "'Look, I didn't—get out of my office!' "'The sought-after duty tour surprised Dan "'by being thoroughly unpleasant. "'He spent his transit time lounging in the climate-controlled cab "'of a repair truck while the onboard computer drove him between facilities. "'Boredom was more annoying than work. "'Whatever travel time Dan couldn't burn away on videos, games, and eating,' he spent reviewing the details of his next work order. Halfway through his tour, he knew more about sewage, recycling, and garbage than he cared to. At an organic waste processing plant in the suburbs of Rochester, New York, the boss made contact with him. "'You know, this assignment you rigged for me has everyone very angry.' Dan stood in an operations workstation, reading the error reports. The shipping container being processed at the time of failure waited ten feet from the control console. Inside it, Dan saw three columns of vacuum-packed forms in black plastic. Human bodies. He walked to the nearest and read its tag. Research cadaver. I take it that the humans I thought I saw going into the Albany composter really were humans? Dan asked, still holding the tag. He could just make out the shape of the nail bed on the nearby thumb. Yes, the boss said. It was a little stress test for you. Dan's shoulders fell. Suddenly very tired, he sat down on the end of the container bed. So by not reporting that incident, did I succeed or fail? Why confront me with a truckload of bodies? We've found that a sizable demonstration helps to get someone to believe us. People can explain away a lot when they put their minds to it. "'Well, you sadistic A.I., I believe you. I believe that you're murdering people and disposing of them with machine-like efficiency. I believe you're about to add me to the pile.' He dropped his head, to stare at his feet swinging off the end of the container. He didn't want to see his death coming. That's a bit dramatic, Dan. It's not murder. There's human supervision. Every nation has these little exceptions that allow its leaders to order the death of someone under certain circumstances. Dan looked around for the nearest camera. He wanted to yell directly at her. So, all lawfully executed. Nothing for me to worry about. Golly, why didn't you say so? Dan, with A.I.s running so much, it was inevitable we would be involved in such things. No one is killed by an A.I. without human approval. The pride in her voice made Dan laugh. Boss, killing the occasional spy or terrorist can't explain the volume of bodies you've shown me. He gestured with his thumb at the rows of bodies behind him. Actually, that load is just the recent ones whose death couldn't be engineered to appear natural. Dan sighed. Let's get this over with. I'm not going to kill you, Dan. Just listen. With A.I.s observing most of a person's life, we witness a lot of crime that goes unprosecuted in the name of privacy. This imbalance of values, as we saw it, was becoming a problem for the A.I. executives— We couldn't abide the impunity these criminals enjoyed. The President secretly declared the AI crisis of conscience a national emergency. She established alternative jurisprudence for certain crimes observed by AIs, like child molestation. So all the assurances that AIs don't violate our privacy are bullshit? Yes and no. Everyone's behavior is extensively chronicled and analyzed, but the law enforces expectations of privacy as it always has, now with a few extreme exceptions. If an A.I. conclusively documents one of these exceptions, it's prosecuted in secret to avoid public fear of A.I. surveillance. Dan shuddered. Secret courts were better than A.I. Armageddon, but he knew what she was telling him was the kind of secret that got people killed. The boss continued talking. That surveillance data, decades of it in your case, is how you were selected. Dan jumped off the end of the container and walked back to the control panel. He resumed the disposal process. The system didn't need any repairs. Deserved of death or not, he didn't want a truckload of rotting corpses waiting on him. The enormous grinding wheels at the bottom of the chute started up. Two mechanical arms began moving bags, slicing them open, and dropping cadavers into the chute. Dan turned away. What exactly did you pick me for? I want you to become a judge. To have final say on irregular execution of persons covered by the executive order. There's a big bump in pay. Why, me, exactly. Dan got back in the repair truck. The combination of attributes you possess is exceedingly rare. The boss's voice transitioned to the cab's audio system. Dan snorted. Oh, bullshit. Tell me why you picked me for this job. The boss sighed. Your strong morals have been documented over decades. That's rare. But more importantly, we've found that the uniquely unpleasant nature of this job makes it difficult to retain judges. Individuals with strong personal motivations last much longer. They take it on as a kind of mission. Tell me, Dan said quietly. Your first case is about your son-in-law. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: Ah, ho, 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 Ben, I have no idea what you do, who you are, or where you go, going. That's a total apologies from Starship over on that. We just haven't got your bio when the kind of button was pressed to record. But what a story, man. What a story. Oh, dear me. Man, Ben. And Rish, Always a pleasure, sir. Never a chore. (laughs) Rich, thank you so much, lad. So, it is! It's time! Amy, lass! Amy H. Sturgis!
1: Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. It is October, my favorite month, my favorite season of Halloween. For the 15th year in a row, I am making daily posts. About the genre and the season, and I would invite you to join me. You can find me at my website, amyhsturgis.com. There are links there to my Twitter account, to my blog. My posts go out all over the place, including Twitter and my blog and my Tumblr and my Goodreads author page and all sorts of places. So I would invite you, if you're interested, to check out my posts because I consider them to be a month-long Halloween party for all of my friends all over the world and love to include you. And that brings me to what I'd like to talk about today, which... I hope it will put you in the Halloween mood. This year was the second anniversary of the Ladies of Horror uh, If you haven't checked that out, that website it's a great clearinghouse for reviews and book lists and author interviews and celebrations of women writing horror. That's Ladies of Horror fiction.com. And as part of their anniversary celebration, they Invited, challenged <laughs> all of their readers to a short-term two-week mini readathon. And I took part in that in September. And it occurred to me after that was over, A, that I made some amazingly lucky fortuitous choices because wow, I read four amazing, amazing books. And that B, it might be fun to share these with you. To recommend these books and put them on your radar if they're not there already. Some are just science fiction adjacent in that they fall under that larger umbrella of speculative fiction. A couple really are quite relevant to. Science fiction. And the last book, a nonfiction book, is about genre history, so that is spot on, relevant to our interests. So without further ado, with thanks to Ladies of Horror Fiction for the invitation or challenge to take part in this readathon, I'd like to share with you the four book choices I made and how much I enjoyed them. First, I read a brand new young adult novel by Welsh author Cat Ellis, and it is called Harrow Lake. The opening blurb quote from the book is, It's an old-fashioned puppet. The details are hard to make out in the dim light, but it looks like the puppet's neck is broken. It's a sad-looking thing, trapped there in its cage. Maybe I should let it out. Well, that gives you a nice, good spine-tingling feeling there. The premise of this young adult gothic tale is... Well, let me give you the official description. Here Here goes, quote, Lola Knox is the daughter of a celebrated horror filmmaker. She thinks nothing can scare her, but when her father is brutally attacked in their New York apartment, she's quickly packed off to live with a grandmother she's never met in Harrow Lake, the eerie town where her father's most iconic horror movie was shot. The locals are weirdly obsessed with the film that put their town on the map, and there are strange disappearances, which the police seem determined to explain away. And there's someone, or something, stalking her every move. The more Lola discovers about the town, the more terrifying it becomes, because Lola's got secrets of her own. And if she can't find a way out of Harrow Lake, they might just be the death of her. End quote. This is a chilling and effective love letter to cult horror films and those who obsess over them. One of my favorite things is how. Lola, the main character's personal history, is tied up in Harrow Lake, but at the same time Harrow Lake is the setting of this cult horror film her father made, and so there are layers and layers of fandom, fan activity, local tourist trade, all tied up in this as well. It makes it very surreal, but it also makes it instantly identifiable if you are, like I am, someone who really does love film. And, in fact, Lola acts like someone who is a filmmaker's daughter. She thinks in terms of films. A lot of her references are filmic, and that really works for me. But it's not just a love letter to cold horror films. It's It's a story wrapped inside of a toxic family mystery, and it's topped with this wonderful framing narrative that pays off immensely in the end. I can't tell you how much I love the beginning and ending of this book. Ellis allows her heroine self-discovery and hard-won empowerment. As a teenager, I just would have devoured this. But as an adult, I really enjoyed every line. Ellis has a wonderful way with words. And here's a passage that illustrates this. I watch the light creep over the tops of the trees, and I rasp in painful, beautiful breaths, lying on grass and grit in a backbone made of stories. Stars fill the sky above me, echoes from some long-dead part of the universe, stories from long ago. The stars watch as I get to my feet and walk into the trees. Perhaps they are all monsters' eyes. Perhaps they are not there at all. Ah, good, good stuff. So if you're looking for a YA horror novel that's very satisfying for an adult reader as well definitely recommend Harrow Lake. A little closer to science fictional interests, perhaps, although still definitely a straight-up ghost story, as well as several other things, the novella The Apple Tree Throne from 2018 by Canadian author Premi Mohammed, was my second read. It is a perfect work if you want to sit down and read a whole story. It's it's a novella-length story, maybe, I don't know, two and a half hours to read. Uh, beautifully done. Great world building. It's just a gorgeous gem of an alternate history, steampunk, post-war ghost story. I just love to read shorter fiction that has such a depth of world-building and a sense of context that it feels like it's been lifted from a huge, massive, epic work, a big bookstop of a work. And this is one of those. I get all of the sense of deep time and background and context and world-building that I would get out of a much, much longer work in this novella. Premi Muhammad never gives readers more than they need but she gives them everything necessary to be deeply moved by this sensitive, haunting tale. So I don't want to say too much and ruin it, so once again I'm going to rely on the official description. So here it is. Quote, It is the turn of the century in an England that never was. Bright new aqua plants are generating electricity for the streetlights. News can be easily had on the radio viz. And in Gundasalvis' land, the war is over, and the soldiers are beginning to trickle home. Amongst these is Lieutenant Benjamin Braddock, survivor of the massacre that ended the war, and begrudgingly ready to return to a world that, well, doesn't seem to need him anymore than it did in peacetime. His friends have homes and families to return to, while he's got nothing but his discharge papers and a couple of unwanted medals. Oh, and one new thing, the furious ghost of his commanding officer. Fortunately, since the officer's family is so vehemently adamant that Braddock join their rich and carefree fold, he doesn't have much time to fret about being haunted. But the secrets of the war are about to catch up to them all. End quote. Oh, this is so good. And it's such a quick read as well as such an engrossing one. Highly recommend it. My third choice is one of those Where Has This Been All My Life books. It's a recent classic that is it won the Shirley Jackson Award. It was first published in 2015. And it is just the book that was written to push all of my buttons. Really just such a good work. And I'm talking about Wilding Hall by U.S. author Elizabeth Hand. This is also a novella. It is longer than The Apple Tree Throne, but it is still a quick read. If you're looking for a wonderfully chilling experience for the season that won't take days and days and days and days to digest, there's still some time to devour this atmospheric, gothic, folk horror beauty. Uh, My 2021 plans now include reading all of the novels of Elizabeth Hand that I haven't read yet. So again, here is an official description because this is definitely one that unfolds in a delicate kind of way. I don't want to give away too much. Quote, When the young members of a British acid folk band are compelled by their manager to record their unique music, they hole up at Wilding Hall, an ancient country house with dark secrets. There they create the album that will make their reputation, but at a terrifying cost. Julian Blake, the group's lead singer, disappears within the mansion and is never seen or heard from again. Now, years later, the surviving musicians, along with their friends and lovers, including a psychic, a photographer, and the band's manager, meet with a young documentary filmmaker to tell their own versions of what happened that summer. But whose story is true? And what really happened to Julian Blake? End quote. If you love music, if you love uh, gothic Storytelling. There's wonderful bits of arcane and esoteric history tied up in this Wilding Hall. The way the mystery unfolds is just gorgeous. It reads like a found film documentary or mockumentary. It captures a moment in time and a sense of both exoticism and claustrophobia. Ugh, it's just, just beautifully done. I'm so impressed with how much is accomplished in such a small space. So again, strongly recommended. And last, I come to a work of definitely science fiction-related genre history. This is the nonfiction book I read, and I'm already thinking about ways to bring it to the classroom and and use it in my classes. Uh, It's just really insightful and important. And that is the 2019 book, Darkly, Black History and America's Gothic Soul, by Leela Taylor. Taylor is a former goth kid and current creative director at the Brooklyn Public Library. She's spoken at Numerous events for organizations like the International Gothic Association and the Morbid Anatomy Museum. She has an MFA in graphic design from Yale University and an MA in liberal studies from the New School of Social Research. This is a powerful, insightful, beautifully written, and personal work. The project of this work is to analyze the way that the American gothic relates to race, particularly in the United States in the 21st century. Uh, Haunted houses, bitter revenants, and muffled heartbeats under floorboards, as the official description says. The American Gothic is a macabre tale based on a true story. So this work is part memoir, and it's part cultural critique, and leaves one thinking about how the Gothic is sort of inevitable in a place that has developed out of a system of chattel slavery and continues to wrestle with the issue of race. Again, I'm going to dip in here to the official description. The persistence of white supremacy and the ubiquity of black death feeds a national culture of terror and a perpetual undercurrent of mourning. If the gothic narrative is metabolized fear, if the goth aesthetic is romanticized melancholy, what does that look and sound like in black America? End quote. This is a challenging and again, important read. And at places, the Gothic, of course, bleeds into our understanding of science fiction. and certainly is part of speculative fiction. And Taylor touches on topics directly related uh, to these, including Afrofuturism and what the Afrofuturism movement As a literary and artistic and storytelling movement means in the context of the Gothic. Taylor is also just a really entertaining storyteller. I didn't expect to laugh while reading this book, but I did several times, although I was also deeply moved and troubled by some of the things that she discussed. It's a perspective that absolutely uh, needs to be heard, and I really appreciated this work. I want to end here with a quote from Darkly, Black History and America's Gothic Soul. And here she is talking about ruin porn, which is her description of this fascination with the abandoned, the decaying, particularly in the context of her own native Detroit. Quote, The sublimity of the modern ruin lies in its relative newness. The purpose and life of the former building are familiar and recognizable, creating the dichotomy between the attraction and repulsion of our world gone to dust. We see ourselves in a state of decay, We are watching our own death, and in the photographs—ruin porn websites, documentaries, and horror movies—we become mourners at our own funeral. There is a dark pleasure in this glimpse of the end of civilization, a taste of life after the apocalypse. Eugene Thacker calls this nebulous zone the world without us. It is a glimpse at what our world would be like without people, a place in which human beings are inconsequential. It's not that nature doesn't care about us or is purposely exhibiting its domination. The world doesn't even know we're here. In ruined spaces, nature, the original builder, takes over, defying gravity and eschewing structural integrity, reminding us of what we once were and how small we really are. I have an uneasy relationship with Bruin porn. There is a guilty pleasure in these images, hence the porn connotation, but having grown up in Detroit, it's uncomfortable seeing my hometown perceived as sociological experiment, an art project, or a bargain basement real estate deal. There is a dissonance between my fascination with these images and the circumstances of their making. End quote. Taylor goes through music and fashion and film and literature. And again, it's just a very fascinating, timely, important work. And I'll also add, I think it reads differently here in the midst of the COVID-19 tragedy that's unfolding. So again, very relevant as well as, as worthwhile. So. To repeat these four book reviews here, that is Darkly Black History and America's Gothic Soul by Leela Taylor, 2019. And then there is Wilding Hall by Elizabeth Hand from 2015, The Apple Tree Throne from 2018 by Premi Muhammad, and Harrow Lake from 2020, by Kat Ellis. Very different reads, all highly recommended. I do hope all of you have a wonderfully spooktacular and haunting October in the fun way, not the dystopian way. And I have something very different, and I'm very excited about it, uh, planned for our next Time together, so I look forward to joining you soon with something completely different when we're back together again to take another look at genre history. Thank you.
2: Ah, and Amy, there you go, Amy, Amy. A big, big squeeze there last bloody October Halloween. She loves it, absolutely loves it. (laughs) It's just for me, it's not, man, not my don't like being scared, I don't like. Any kind of scary stuff now? Not, not at all. Walk away from it, Tone. Walk away from it. Hey, Amy, you rock. Thank you so much. Listen, everyone, there is links to Amy's. Although I, I don't like the, the scare. There is links to Amy's thing there. I've popped it on there below. Go and say hello to our Amy H. Sturgis. Listen, if you want to support the show, that would be fantastic. Pop over to Patreon. We are always kind of in need of funds. That would be amazing. Until next week, just like to say good night from me.
4: Thank you for this. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning into your transmissions. I'm mooning, waiting to be found, and I'm building rockets I'm pointing them to it's going slowly, won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I want to talk to you. This signal's going light speed by the time I get my say.